0: We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 7. For Bridgman's platoon, the morning of the third day was a morning of waiting, an interminable morning in which its sections were shuffled around the company's perimeter. They became an isolated pocket of men. To the north of them, the 4th Parachute Brigade launched its expected attack along the axis of the railway to secure the northern arc of the bridgehead, To the south, the borders and divisional troops held out against attacks from the west and to the southeast, the battered remnants of four battalions fought on in a last desperate bid to reach and relieve the 2nd Parachute Battalion, cut off and surrounded at the northern end of the road bridge in Arnhem. Early in the afternoon, Tim Jordan and Alan looked at their hastily constructed battle map. Immediately to the east and west of the company position, the map showed ominously empty areas. A drive by the Germans from the east along the road from Arnhem to the ferry would slice across the front held by the platoon and completely cut off the 4th Parachute Brigade from the remainder of the division. Jordan and Allen exchanged glances. Something would have to go by the board. It was impossible to hold the company area secure and at the same time be in any position to deny the Heveadorp Arnhem road to a determined enemy. Allen handed over the western sector previously held by Ramsden and his platoon, to the sergeant major and a scratch group from company headquarters, and moved his own platoon forward and to the east, astride the middle road to Arnhem. Blake and his section were now north of the road, and as they prepared to defend the house they had taken over, they listened to the battle raging beyond the railway line. The firing seemed to be remaining static. It did not, as they had anticipated, diminish and then restart farther to the east as 4th Brigade advanced along their northern route. Blake looked across the road to where he could see Gorman's men at work in the house opposite. Both sections had their Bren guns in the front gardens of the houses they were holding, and their riflemen and Sten gunners in the upstairs rooms and in the roof. Bridgman joined Blake as the sergeant linked six Hawkins anti-tank mines to a clothesline, and, satisfied by the progress being made by the two forward sections, he moved down the road to where Leyland was preparing the drop-end of the tank trap. He watched young Adams as Leyland explained the tactics his section was to use should enemy armour pass the first two sections. The young soldier had lost some of his earlier apprehension and as Leyland positioned the men and gave them their instructions he showed an interest quite different from the stunned apathy he had exhibited since the shock of his first brief action. Allen crossed the road and looked in on his headquarters section as it prepared for the part it was to play in conjunction with Leyland and his men. They were as well advanced as the remainder of the platoon, and after a few quick words with Murray, he went back to where he'd left Blake. The platoon now occupied four houses. Two, those held by Blake and Gorman, were opposite each other and 30 yards short of the crossroads formed by the road they were on, which ran across the north of Oosterbeek, and another which ran south from the Arnhem-Amsterdam road. 75 yards farther back, Leyland and Murray occupied two more houses, also on opposite sides of the road. In the event of a German attack from the east, the area between the two pairs of houses was to be the platoon's killing ground. Back with Blake, Alan listened to the sounds of battle to the north, the German fire coming from a little to the west of where he guessed the brigade to be. It sounds as if four-power have been taken on from behind, he spoke without surprise as if it was something he had expected to happen. If they're too tightly squeezed, they'll have to get back into the divisional area before taking a new line. Blake shut his eyes and tried to visualise the battle scene. He could imagine the brigade held up on their axis and being harassed from the rear. They would not dare take the risk of disengaging to the north and putting an even greater distance between themselves and the division. They would have to come south. That means they'll come down through the company position, doesn't it, sir? Some of them might, but if the whole brigade comes due south, they'll lose their transport. They can't get it over the railway embankment, and the nearest crossing is back at Wolfhazer. If we're not still holding it, it'll have to be retaken. I don't think Div can help them. Judging by the firing to the south, the borders have troubles of their own and there's no other infantry unit not already committed. They may use the glider pilots. There must be a thousand or so of them somewhere, I should think. He broke off and listened. The slow clank of a creeping tank took the two men to the side of the window in the bedroom where they were talking. The angle of the wall prevented them from seeing more than 30 yards up the road towards Arnhem. They slipped out of the room and ran down the stairs, their boots breaking the close silence of the house. The front door was wedged back on its hinges and dropping to the ground, they joined the Bren group whose members were staring through the privet over the low garden wall. Bridgman spotted a slight movement at the crossroads and was able to make out a German helmet and half a face a few inches above the pavement. The man was peering round the corner from the road leading up from Oosterbeek and Alan wondered if the armour they had heard was on the same road and if so, how had it got there? Somehow the Germans must have got behind the parachute battalions and the south staffs in the centre of the town. The head disappeared, but almost at once the man himself ran out from his cover and crossed the road. He was followed by four others, and the five of them entered the front garden of a house on Bridgman's side of the street. They were out of his sight almost at once, but he knew Gorman's men would know where they were and would be able to neutralise them at the right time. Another half-section of Germans scrambled over the garden wall, round which the first soldier had peered. Alan turned to Blake. Where's the MG42? Blake jerked his head backwards, up there in a bedroom. Get back in the house and tell them that last lot are their first target when the firing starts. Blake crawled away and into the house. Alan continued to watch the crossroads. He guessed that after a period of observation by their infantry section, the German armour would start up again and come out from behind its cover. He had no idea whether it would turn left and come through his platoon position or whether it would continue up the road it was on and cross the railway embankment, reinforcing those enemy elements which were holding up 4th Brigade. He could hear the noise of more than one engine running, but it was difficult to decide exactly how many German vehicles were concealed behind the houses and how many of them were armoured. Blake rejoined him and Alan looked round at the sergeant's grinning face. Spot on, sir. The MG42 crew can actually see three of them they won't give us much trouble. The sudden revving of engines gave the impression of an armoured division starting up and the first tank, an old Mark IV, lurched into sight. The watching men held their breath as it crawled forward. It seemed to hesitate in the centre of the crossroads and then it locked one track and swung round towards them. Bridgman slid backwards to the front door of the house and once inside he pounded upstairs to the bedroom. He crossed it quickly and stood behind the crew of the captured German machine gun. A second tank had followed the first and both were clanking warily down the road towards the platoon. Alan wondered what they would do when they spotted the clothesline across the road. It had been laid as carelessly as possible. It wound slackly across the tarmac surface and on the far side it stopped short of the garden gate by a good 18 inches. He hoped that a free end of rope might allay any suspicion. A self-propelled gun and two infantry-carrying half-tracks had followed the leading two tanks and the Mark IV had got to within ten yards of the clothesline. Alan pulled the very light pistol from the inside of his smock and waited. The leading tank ground to a standstill and its gun traversed slowly from side to side like a solitary antenna on a blind crab. Without warning, the top half of a German officer emerged from the turret. Alan stepped back farther into the room pressing down with his right hand on the head of the man behind the machine gun. The German's eyes followed the clothesline to where its unattached end showed on the pavement. He glanced sharply at the houses on each side of the road and Alan hoped the man waiting out of sight behind the far garden wall would not show himself in his anxiety to be ready to snatch at the end of the rope and pull it in. The Panzer officer had started to sink back into the tank when he seemed to change his mind and stood up again. He half turned his mouth opening as if to shout back to his infantry but again he had second thoughts and dropped out of sight into the tank. The Mark IV lurched forward with the other armour following it. Alan ducked and crossed to the other side of the room where he could look back towards his two rear sections and at the same time follow the movement of the German tanks. They picked up speed a little and alan just had time to thrust his hand out of the window and fire his flare over the leading tank and to watch the second clothesline come to life as it was dragged across the road with its attached cargo of anti-tank mines the leading tank ran onto one of the mines and it seemed to him that it skipped sideways like a girl playing hopscotch before it came to rest one track severed and trailing the platoon's piots opened up Gammon bombs and grenades rained down from the windows above and Sten gunfire was poured into the open-topped troop-carrying half-tracks. The captured Spandau belched German bullets into the German half-section back at the crossroads. The two rear vehicles had started to turn round before Alan realised that at his end of the trap, the road was still clear of mines. The line had been caught up by one of the German tracks and dragged several yards along the road. Its loose end now lay ten feet from where the dismayed face of one of Alan's men looked out from the gate opposite. Bridgman ran from the bedroom and down the stairs. He reached the front door in time to see Blake dart out of the garden gate, his Sten gun in his right hand and his left dragging the rope-linked mines behind him. The last German vehicle was the self-propelled gun and it completed its turn as Blake ran across its front. It started back in the direction from which it had come and crushed one of the mines as Blake leaped for the pavement on the far side of the road. Alan had time to see the sergeant blown through the open gate opposite him before he himself was thrown off his feet. He scrambled up and put a burst of sten gun fire into the backs of two Germans attempting to clamber over a wall into a garden. One of the half-tracks had run up onto the pavement. It had come to rest with its front end half through a garden wall. Its occupants had been thrown about by the violence of its sudden turn and sharply arrested movement. Some had been jerked clean out of the vehicle as they stumbled to their feet. Some were struggling to rise from where they had been hurled on the deck. Some would never move again, and as the survivors looked desperately about them, death singled them out from the windows above. The firing had almost stopped, and Alan shouted across to Gorman to keep his Bren aimed back at the road intersection. He could see Blake still lying on his face in the open doorway opposite, so he turned to where Corporal Heibling was looking down from an open window above him. Keep the two MGs trained on the crossroads. I'll take the rest of the section. Send them down now. The men joined him in the garden, and with their fingers hooked expectantly round the triggers of their weapons, they made their way to where the German armor lay like stranded ships on the road and pavements. The surviving occupants stood about in small groups, their hands resting on their steel helmets, and with shocked, apprehensive expressions on their faces. Blake's section rounded them up quickly and Allen sent two men back with them to Company HQ, ordering the rest of the section back to the house. He shouted to Leyland to salvage anything of value from the enemy vehicles and then made his way to the gateway of Gorman's house. Blake no longer lay where Allen had seen him and when he went through the open doorway, he found Blake sitting in an armchair smoking a cigarette. He looked white and shaken, but his eyes showed their usual steadiness. What happened to you? I thought you'd bought it. I wasn't scratched, just knocked down by the blast. I landed on my Sten mags and they knocked all the wind out of me. I thought I was never going to start breathing again. Alan called to Gorman. We needn't worry about any more armour coming down this road. They've made their own tank obstacles. Leave your Bren group where it is and get most of your section to the back of the house. The Jerry's may try to push their infantry behind you. He went back to the open doorway and looked towards where Leyland and his men were at work salvaging ammunition and arms. Alan spotted Leyland on the far side of the road, halfway up the staggered line of wrecked vehicles. He called to attract the sergeant's attention. Leyland turned, his thick-set body looking square and resolute under the bulking smock and equipment. The sling of his sten was over his left shoulder, adjusted so that the gun fitted comfortably into his hands at waist height. His face bore the calm, determined look of a man, busy with a task well within his competence. He raised his chin slightly in recognition of Bridgman's shout. Clear up as quickly as you can and get back under cover. Watch the back of your house. I don't think they'll come down our side. They won't know where 4th Brigade extends to, but they might just chance it. Leyland waved and shouted to his section to get back into the house with all they had collected. He moved to the open doorway and watched them come past him, laden with captured arms and ammunition. Adams was staggering towards the building under a load of seven or eight German rifles. Leyland was about to call to him when Corporal Marsden shouted to the sweating youngster, his voice irritable. You can sling that stuffing lot away. We're not starting a museum. There's a Schmeisser and two boxes of ammo in that half-track. Get those. He pointed to where the vehicle stood, exactly in the centre of the road where it had been halted. It appeared completely undamaged and looked as if it might drive off at any moment. Adam stood flat-heeled and irresolute, the rifles bundled in front of him, his mouth open and his face pink and sweating. He looked at the other men as they made their way past him. They carried Spandau, Schmeissers and ammunition, but no rifles. He had thought he was doing well and had been so busy grabbing the rifles and propping them against the side of a tank so that he could pick them up in one go that he had not had time to see what the rest of the section were doing. His lips turned down in disappointment. He looked at the rifles in his crooked arms as if he hoped they would disappear. He raised his head and saw Eric Leyland smiling at him from the open doorway. He grinned back a sickly grin which betrayed his embarrassment and unconsciously lowered his arms so that the rifles cascaded onto the road. The sudden clatter made him jump and at once he started to move quickly. He ran back to the half-track and clambered up its side. He threw the two boxes of ammunition out onto the road and he took the Schmeisser from a dead German's hand, looking away from the vacant, drained face of the man they had killed because he happened to have been born in a country where, in their despair, the people had permitted and even encouraged the rise and rule of a megalomaniac. Adams climbed down and, holding the Schmeisser in his left hand, he looked at the two boxes If he carried both, he couldn't carry the Schmeisser. He tried to come to a decision. He did not want to make a fool of himself again. He looked at the gateway, but Leyland had gone back into the house. Adams suddenly realised that he was the only living man left in the road, and with that realisation came the smell of burnt cordite and hot engines. He looked about him as a man might who was lost in a forest and hoped to see something which would help him to orientate himself. For the first time, he saw the dead Germans as fellow human beings. He had never really thought about the enemy as being like himself, and his new recognition of the obvious filled him with a compassion which made him imagine himself in any one of the dusty, blood-bespattered grey uniforms. He grabbed one of the boxes and, dragging it behind him, set out for the gate. The German soldier must have fired in the instant that Adams moved. He heard the whine of the bullet as it passed behind him. He broke into a run the ammunition box suddenly increasing its weight till he imagined he was being dragged back to be displayed like a target in the butts. He started to release his grip on the handle of the box but remembered Leyland and Bridgman and the other men in the platoon and the way they might look away from him ashamed of his failure. He tripped on the curb and fell sprawling on the pavement as another bullet cut the air where he had been a second before. He scrambled to his knees And as he half turned to seize the box which had broken from his grasp, he heard Corporal Marsden's voice screaming at him, Leave the stuffing thing! Get in here, you bloody fool! But Adams had obtained a fresh grip, and he was through the gate and into the hallway of the house before the meaning of Marsden's words had registered in his brain. He stood facing the Corporal in the hall, his chest rising and falling with a combination of exertion and relief, his face happy and shining with success, so that Marsden's words came through to him in disjointed lengths like snippets from a soundtrack. "'Ying idiot! Bloody ammunition! Bridgman's a raving lunatic about! "'You'd think we're a bloody salvage company. "'You'll sit up all night counting the rounds like a stuffing miser!' Corporal Marsden's voice became lower and lower as he blew off steam, and eventually he ground to an unintelligible mutter. Adams shuffled his feet and looked away. It was impossible to be sure what these people expected of him. Back in England, Lieutenant Bridgman had always been emphasising the unreliability of resupply drops, the necessity of conserving ammunition, and how important it was to take advantage of every opportunity of capturing the enemies. And neither Corporal Marsden nor any of the others had disagreed with the platoon commander then, but now Tom Marsden seemed really angry because Adams had not dropped the box and run for cover at once. Adams had vaguely imagined that he would be praised for what he had done. Instead, he was being slated for an idiot. Corporal Marsden was talking to him again in a voice that was normal and could be understood. you meant to be a sniper, at least you've got telescopic sights on your rifle. Get up into that roof and see if you can get the bastard who fired at you. Adams climbed wearily up the stairs. He was suddenly very tired, almost exhausted. As he got to the top and stood still holding the banister rail, Leyland came out of a front bedroom. The section commander glanced at Adams' face. Come in here a moment. Leyland spoke quietly and without waiting for a reply, he walked back into the bedroom, Adams following him. The sergeant moved over to the position he had left at the window. He didn't look at Adams, but kept his eyes fixed on the farthest point he could see on the road into Arnhem. Sit down a minute. He waved towards the bed. Adams seated himself and then had to fight to keep upright. He was filled with an almost uncontrollable desire to lie back and sleep, to sink into the oblivion of unconsciousness and only to awaken when it was all over, or perhaps to discover that the whole thing was an unpleasant dream and that he wasn't in Holland surrounded by German soldiers and tanks who wanted nothing else but to kill him and all the others who were with him. Don't take too much notice of Tom Marsden. Leyland threw Adams a quick smile. He was only angry because he thought you might have been killed or wounded unnecessarily. Try to get some sense of proportion in your head about the things we have to do. The ammunition and arms were objectives that were desirable, but not essential. If we're thrown into a defensive role, of course, we shall want every automatic weapon and all the ammunition we can lay our hands on. But you don't have to risk your life at this stage for a thousand rounds of ammo. There may come a time when ammunition may be of more value than men, but that time isn't yet. When you have a job to do out in the open, try to be as quick as you can. Do it properly, but get it over with and get undercover again as soon as possible. Now, get up in the roof and remember, you don't have anything to prove. The firing started as Adams was climbing the attic steps. He made his way gingerly to the front of the house, stepping carefully on the spaced rafters. Close to the eaves was the mattress he had placed there earlier on. And he knelt on it now and looked through the gap where the tiles had been torn away. He could see one house beyond the one held by Sergeant Gorman in his section and he thought the firing was coming from behind it and farther to the east, towards Arnhem. He could hear other members of his section moving about below and behind him at the back of the house and to the north the distance dulled, incessant fire of 4th Brigade as it tried for the high ground from which it would sweep down and form a northern arc on the edge of the town. The detached houses on the far side of the street stood bright and clean in their red-bricked isolation. They looked very like the houses on the new estate in the Midland town which was his home, but despite the noise of battle they seemed quieter houses than the ones he remembered. They were better cared for, but in a cold remote way that he did not understand. He found it hard to believe that real people lived in them, and he wondered where their owners were. He realised how few Dutch people he had seen since they landed. There had been quite a lot of them in the divisional area on the first night, young and middle-aged men wearing orange armbands, some with weapons and some unarmed. He had been told that they were members of the Dutch Underground and he wondered where they were now. They had seemed very calm and confident, almost as if the descent of an airborne division on their doorstep was an everyday occurrence. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to Zeno's The Cauldron. The firing round Gorman's house hotted up and Adam's moved his head a few inches at a time in an attempt to spot some sign of movement, but he could see nothing. He wanted to go into the bedroom below him, where he could hear the voices of the men watching the gardens leading up to the railway embankment. He did not want to stay with them, but only to fortify himself, to draw encouragement from the warmth of their presence. There was a sudden and prolonged burst of Brenfire fire from the direction of Gorman's house, and, as if it were a signal that both sides waited for, small arms of every calibre opened up, The fierce staccato crack of the individual explosions blending into one long cacophony of sound that rose and fell in successive waves, beating against Adams' head and making him wince as each screaming crest broke over him. Enemy mortar bombs landed on the roofs opposite him and in the road among the German armour. Adams shifted his position continually, but he could see no movement at all. It was like being struck blind at a cup tie and only being able to guess what was happening from the unintelligible roar of the crowd. He could hear Leyland shouting in the house below him and a few seconds later he saw Corporal Marsden and Wilcox run across the street carrying a German MG42. They entered the gate of the house above the one held by headquarters section. Marsden smashed a downstairs window with the butt of his sten and clambered through the gap in the broken pane. He turned at once and took the light machine gun from Wilcox's extended hand. Adams saw the second man start to climb into the house and then sensed rather than saw a movement up the road to his left. He turned his head and was in time to see Bridgman and Bilting bolt through the gate of Gorman's house, Bilting carrying another MG42. Adams looked back and saw that Wilcox had not yet disappeared from sight. His arms were through the window and his boots were scrabbling at the wall. Then his legs were still and he hung like a man who has slipped on the high wire, his body strangely conveying catastrophe by its stillness. Marsden reappeared at the window and seized the sagging man by his shoulders. He was pulling him in when the mortar bomb landed in the next garden. The explosion threw up a great cloud of soft earth and Adams ducked as stones and fragments of metal showered on the tiles about his head. When he looked again, there was no one at the window opposite him, but he could see a barely distinguishable movement in the room beyond it. He was wondering if Wilcox had made it after all when Marsden looked out and down into the garden. One side of his face was red and dripping and only partly concealed by the handkerchief he held to it. He seemed to stare for a long time, at what lay out of Adams' sight three feet or so below the window ledge, and then he turned away and disappeared towards the back of the building. Wilcox was dead. Adams was quite sure about this. He could not imagine Marsden leaving him if he were only wounded. He looked back up the road, at the front doors and windows of the houses that hid from him the battle being fought in the gardens to their rear, and he felt terribly alone. For the first time since landing, he actually wished himself in the battle, There he would be among his friends and their shouted defiance and hot curses and the tingling excitement of their aroused emotions. He would have felt Bridgman's grip on the battle and would himself have been part of the team working together to deny the Germans advance into the almost defenceless company area where the CO and the sergeant major held the position with under 30 men. A German machine gun opened up due south from where he knelt and as his head snapped round, he realised that he could now spot the difference between the enemy's guns and their own. He decided that the gun was the one taken across by Wilcox and Marsden and was pleased that the sounds of battle were no longer as meaningless to him as a page in a foreign newspaper. With this knowledge was born a new confidence. If he could now read the writing of war, it was possible he might write a few lines himself before the end. The firing quieted to a series of intermittent exchanges and he could again pick out the more distant sounds of the other bigger battle being fought by 4th Brigade. Some freak atmospheric condition made the sound of the firing to the north vary in intensity. Sometimes it sounded very far away, at others as if it were just outside in the back garden of the house he was in. He remembered this sort of thing happening before. In the bed he shared with his elder brother. He had lain listening to the sounds of the fairground on the outskirts of the town, to which he had been forbidden to go on that particular evening because of his failure to do his share of the family chores in the morning. The street outside was quiet with everyone away at the fair, and the summer evening held a dusty closeness. He lay thinking of the happy noise and the laughter and the whirling of the giant machines, the raucous calls of the barkers and the exciting screams of the girls as they were swung high on the swings by their chaps. And the sound of it all had alternated between the very loud and the barely heard. Lying alone, his tears finished and his throat sore from the self-pitying sobs he had strangled, he had daydreamed the evening away, the immeasurable span of his unlived life reaching out, a golden carpet stretching onto the infinity of a romantic child's dreams. "'curled up in the loneliness of the big bed, "'holding his body close in his crossed forearms, "'he had cradled his secret thoughts of the future to his innermost self. "'He would forgive them in the hour of his triumph, "'but they must know that he remembered "'and recognised that it was their stupidity he forgave. "'They would be proud of him when he returned "'for wherever it was he would have gone to. "'That was the part which was never quite clear, "'either now, in the quiet of the deserted evening, "'with the music of the fair as a backcloth to his thoughts,' or at those other times when he had dreamed of the green path his growing youth would cut through the world, leading always away from the sordid ordinariness of his native town. The glamour which surrounded the parachute regiment and the promise of glory which it held out had fixed in his impressionable mind the certainty that it was by far the most romantic and exciting regiment in the army, and it had been a must long before his call-up. When he had been accepted, it had been as if a half-doubted password had been given and opened the door to a way of living, he had known existed outside the dream world in which he had spent so much time. The sound of the 4th Brigade's firing rose and fell, rose to a frantic pitch and died again. There was something desperate about the sound, like a dying man fighting for each succeeding hard-won breath. Adams heard increased movement below him and towards the back of the house. He stood up, straightening his aching body, but as he started to move over the trapdoor, he heard the sound of boots on the road outside and turning back he crouched again and looked down. He had only time to see the top of a steel helmet and the smock below it, before the figure of one of their own men disappeared from his sight as it entered the house. He moved over to where the steps led down from the attic and listened. He could hear Leyland's voice, and Marsden answering him. It must have been the section corporal who he had seen crossing the pavement and entering the house. Happened to your face? Nothing much, but the bastards got Wilcox before we'd got into Murray's position. I reckon there are some Jerry's in a house on this side of the road. Gorman couldn't have knocked out all the ones who came over to cover the armour. How are things going over there? It sounds as if you've got it under control. It's all right now, but it was touch and go for a bit. They must have used the best part of a company against us, but this cattle wire the Dutch used between their gardens really buggered them up. It kept checking them every few yards, and we had enough automatics over there to knock seven kinds of shit out of them. I don't think they'll come back in a hurry. How have you had it? It's been quiet enough here, but I should think 4th Brigade have had it on their present line. Carter came in a few minutes ago from 3 Platoon. They've landed the Polish gliders, but it sounds as if it was a proper cock-up. The LZ was banged between the 10th power and the Germans. 3 Platoon has been shot to hell and they'll be coming back into the company air any time now. What about the Poles? They were bringing in anti-tank guns, weren't they? Yes, they were, but I don't know what the exact position is. The chap from Three Platoon says they got some of them unloaded and away, but it seems the Poles decided that everyone was an enemy and opened up on the King's Own Scottish Borderers, Tenth, Para, and Three Platoon, as well as the Germans. Can't say I blame them. And Opposed Landing's a bastard. You've no idea where the firing's coming from. Anyhow, you'd better take over here and keep your eyes skinned for Three Platoon. I'm going to see Bridgman and find out what the next move is. Adams crept back to his place in the eaves. How bad was Shot to Hell? And what exactly did 4th Brigade have had it on their present line mean? He crouched for a long time on the mattress in the roof without seeing any of the enemy. There seemed to be an incessant coming and going below stairs and every now and again a familiar figure would dart quickly across the road. He heard three platoon arrive in the houses to the west of where he knelt and he heard them move out again through the gardens south of the railway embankment. He guessed they were returning to the company positions and wondered how many of them had failed to come back but instead lay somewhere to the north On or near the Polish landing zone, their dead faces pressed into the Dutch soil or staring with unseeing eyes at the Dutch sky. For Adams, the afternoon drew to its close amid bewildering and unexplained movement which he could hear but only rarely see. Halfway through the short evening, he was called down from his post and joined the remainder of his section as they came together in the hall. Leyland gave them their orders. The other two platoons are back in the company area and in their original positions. We are to join them and take over the sector we held before. The 4th Brigade, including the KOSBs, are coming down inside the Div perimeter. God knows how or when they'll arrive, so for Christ's sake, make certain you don't fire on them in mistake for the Bosch. The 4th have had a hell of a pasting and they're having trouble in disengaging. We can look for them at any time from now. We're going back by sections. Sergeant Blake's first, then Sergeant Gorman's, then ourselves and Platoon HQ last. From the door and lower windows they watched the advanced two sections fall back, covered by headquarters section from the far side of the road. Their own house was of no use to cover the others. The sniper who had shot Wilcox was on the same side of the road as themselves and so could not be seen by Leyland's men. Leyland moved down to the garden gate and looked west to where the two sections were disappearing out of sight as they fell back into their old positions. Across the road at the open doorway opposite, Bridgman was standing just inside its frame, peering after the last man in Gorman's section. He turned his head and his eyes met Leyland's. He nodded and waved his hand from right to left and the section sergeant spoke quickly to Marsden. Right, off you go, Tom. Remember, this side of the road for 30 or 40 yards, then all over together to cover headquarters as they come out. Listening, Adams felt his back grow cold. As they crossed the road, the German sniper would be taking aim at them from less than a 100 yards range. The section quit the house and moved to the gate. Adams found his mind frantically, tumbling in an effort to decide whether it was safer to be among the first or the last to leave cover. Before he could make up his mind, Marsden was out and sliding down the right-hand side of the pavement, the section behind him. Adams followed. The decision had been made for him. With the exception of Leyland and the Bren Gunner, who were remaining to cover the crossroads at the southern intersection, he was the last man, and as such, he decided at the last moment, the most vulnerable They halted 40 yards down the road and lined up with their backs to the garden wall, facing the opposite side of the road. And then at a word from Marsden, they were pounding across the open 60 feet, the sound of their ammunition boots ringing in their ears. Adams ran with his head up and his mouth open, as if ready to cry out before he was hurt. He heard the two shots, but he did not look to see if they had taken effect. He had already seen the body of Jimmy Storrs from Gorman's section lying sprawled with his shoulders on the pavement, and his hips and legs twisted so that they followed the line of the gutter. The gateway seemed filled with men, so without checking in his stride, Adams kept straight on, and at the last moment thrust his stocky body upwards, his weight propelled by muscles grown stronger through his wish to survive at any cost. He cleared the privet head first, his rifle extended and held away from his falling body. He felt his boots catch for a second in the tight-trimmed wood of the hedge, and then he landed on his hands and knees in the Dutch garden. He stayed for a moment with his chest heaving and his head hanging down between his braced arms. He looked up only when he heard Marsden's voice urging three men into the house. He started to follow them, but the section corporal called him back. No, not you. Get in the corner there. He pointed to where the dividing fence joined the low wall and priveted the front garden. The bastard's in that last house, just this side of the crossroads. Gorman's lot must have missed him when the kerfuffle started. The sod's done too already. You see the stuffer doesn't get any more. Adams knelt at the spot pointed out by Marston and looked at the house on the far side of the street before the crossroads. It looked exactly the same as any of the others, except that all of its windows were smashed and the red gashes of bullet-scarred brickwork showed in greater abundance than on the other houses. The German armour obscured much of his view and he could see only one of the downstairs windows. The broken windows gave the upstairs rooms an impression of being gutted, but in one of them, or perhaps in the roof, the sniper waited. Adams eased his rifle forward and looked through the telescopic sights. The house jumped towards him, and he began a slow search of the windows and tiled roof. In the lower right-hand corner of the farthest window, he thought he spotted a movement, but he could not be sure. He was trying to make up his mind whether to put a shot in when Leyland broke cover, followed by Ted Wallace carrying the Bren gun. Adams watched them as they made their way along the far side of the road as he had done minutes earlier with the rest of the section. They halted for a moment opposite him, and then they were running across the road. Adams heard the thud of the bullet which hit Wallace and watched him stumble for a few more paces before going down. Leyland ran on to the gate, then stopped and looked back as if he had been called and was trying to place the direction of the cry. He turned very slowly and looked towards where Wallace lay in the middle of the road. Adams stared at the section sergeant, his eyes wide and a look of incredulity on his face. Time seemed to stand still. Leyland was frowning a little. The slight frown of one who struggles to recall something and his eyes had the faraway unseeing look of a man who sees an internal picture and one so vivid that it obscures the reality of his surroundings. Leyland was no longer in Holland and the road before him was not in Oosterbeek. He saw a market square in Casamassima and instead of the crumpled form of Wallace he saw the figure of Tate struggling to get his Sten gun off his shoulder. He started back across the pavement not with the hurried, furtive action of a man under fire, but firmly, as if bent on an inevitable course which brooked neither deviation nor retreat. He neither ran nor slunk, but walked with a sure step, as a brave man might, to the scaffold, and the first bullet barely checked his stride. His knees bent slightly, and then straightened. He had taken three more steps when the sniper fired again. He stopped, both legs apart and one hand raised to his chest, His head swung slowly to the right towards Bridgman and platoon headquarters, and smiling quietly, he fell forward over the body of Wallace, one leg staying cocked in the air as it lay across the barrel of the Bren. Adams heard his own breath, a harsh grating sound, which seemed to originate high in his head, and his tongue had become a dry, swollen foreignness which threatened to choke him. He jerked his eyes from the two still bodies and looked back at the house by the crossroads. He sensed rather than saw Bridgman and headquarters section as they raced down the pavement towards where he crouched but he did see the raised rifle, the head and one shoulder of the German sniper as he took aim. The sweat dried on his hands, the rifle leapt to his shoulders and the crossed hairlines of the telescope settled where the German's head joined his body. He squeezed slowly on the trigger and the rifle jerked in his hands. He watched the German's rifle fall forward into the garden and he waited expectantly as if prepared for the sniper's body to follow his weapon. He stared through the telescope, but for long seconds he saw nothing. And then a white hand showed for a moment on the bottom of the empty windowpane. The fingers groped and crawled like blind, pink-white slugs. They straightened at last, stiffening and reaching upwards towards the sky. But they closed on nothing as they disappeared, pulled from sight by the weight of a body sagging in death. With the sniper gone, the platoon moved quickly back to the company area. They improved the positions they had already dug, but they did their work for the most part in silence. Used to death... They were all stunned by the manner and pointlessness of Leyland's dying. Bridgman called his order group half an hour before stand two and his section commanders came together in the cover of the trees which separated their platoon from Gordon Brown's. Bridgman tried to be brief. I can't give you much of a pitch of the Germans' dispositions. The whole battle is still too bloody fluid but I reckon it's grinding to a standstill and by this time tomorrow we shall know exactly where we stand. He paused for a moment before adding or fall What's left of the King's Own Scottish Borders will be coming back at any time now and will be taking up a position to our right in the houses along the road we've just left. The 10th and 156th Parabattalions will be coming into the divisional area at first light tomorrow, or at least they will if the Germans allow them to disengage. I can't be sure, but I imagine the General will give them a fresh line and orders to get to the bridge at all cost. I believe the whole three battalions are down to about half strength. Blake broke in, his voice a little higher than usual, carrying a note that one who was ignorant of the sergeant's qualities might have thought slightly hysterical. Bridgman knew the higher pitch denoted only urgency. If they're rejoining Div, why the hell don't they come on during the night? They haven't far to come, and they'll stand a much better chance of making it under cover of darkness. The sergeant spoke half in anger, half in bewilderment. Christ almighty, if they'd give us their map references, we could send a couple of sections to guide them in. There can't be any considerable force between them and us. I reckon it would be a doddle. Alan Bridgman... Turned till he looked squarely at Blake. You're so damn right that it makes me sick to think of them attempting it in daylight. For all the cock they talk about the confusion of night attacks, I'd sooner tackle nearly anything during the night. The other side is always in a worse position because they haven't a clue as to what's happening. My own view is that a commander who's not prepared to commit his troops to movement by night has not much confidence in them or himself. Either that or there's a big gap in their training somewhere. Bridgman stopped abruptly as if he felt he had said more than he should have done. He swallowed once or twice before continuing, and his section commanders knew that it was rage he was forcing down, and no other emotion. What is left of 2nd Battalion and one company of 3rd Battalion are still holding out the bridge, but the four battalions in the town have had it and are being withdrawn to the southeast corner of the Div perimeter. There's a resupply drop tomorrow afternoon, and our platoon is bringing it in. Frank Gorman looked up from his map, his thin face concerned. He stretched his long legs out in front of him before he spoke. But we're a long way from the DZ. He said jerkily. Gorman did nearly everything in jerks. He was very tall, over six foot two in height, and when he moved he appeared to be all elbows and knees. He had small darting eyes, and to those who met him for the first time always seemed to be nervous and flurried. In fact, he was a very good section commander, and the last man to be panicked or hurried into a hasty or wrong decision. Do we have to take it? There's not a chance in hell of it being taken by us or anyone else. We're to use a new area on the western edge of the perimeter, and I don't think there'll be anything between us and the Bosch either. I'll give you more dope on that in the morning, but you, he nodded to Gorman, will operate the signals. The remainder of the platoon will cover you. They sat in silence for a few minutes, each thinking his own thoughts. Marsden was the first to voice, what was uppermost in all their minds. What about Second Army? What the bloody hell has happened to them? They're 24 hours late already. Marsden's temper was as quick and as well directed as the movements of his dapper body. Even in the midst of battle he somehow managed to give the impression that he thought nothing was half so difficult as those in authority tried to make out and to prove it he managed to shave and appear well groomed under conditions which everybody else went along with. When Alan answered there was a slight edge to his voice. He liked Marsden well enough but was impatient with the corporal's preoccupation with matters beyond their control. I don't know and from what I can gather no one else does either. It's no use speculating about it. We've got our own job to do, and after the resupply tomorrow, that means any job they give us. No matter what the final outcome is, let those of us who survive be able to live with the knowledge that we didn't fall down on any of our tasks. Bridgman paused for a moment. He was not quite certain whether he ought to continue, but he did. I'd like to think that those who have fallen down on their jobs, whether through lack of guts or because they're too bloody dilatory and victory-happy, to feel any sense of urgency. I'd like to think that they will find it difficult to live with themselves. But they won't. They never do. They'll be able to rationalise anything, even their own gutless incompetence. He stood up. Right, now, get back and tell the men the essentials. I don't think tonight is going to be as quiet or as easy as last night. Make sure all the men are on their toes. They got to their feet and started to move off, all except Blake. He squatted back on his heels and waited for the others to get out of earshot. Alan stood in silence looking down at the sergeant's face that seemed, without its usual grin, almost that of a stranger. He felt sure that Blake wanted to speak to him about Leyland's death and he was right. Why did he do it, sir? I saw the whole thing from down the road. It wasn't even as if he was trying to save Wallace or help him or, or anything. He didn't take cover or hurry. He just walked out and, and waited to be killed. I can't start to understand it. There was nothing wrong between him and Sally. If there had been, I should have known. What could have made him do that quite suddenly? What could have been in his mind?
1: Hello listeners, it's Anita Arnand here from the Goalhanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along with...
0: Me, William Dalrymple, and we are here to tell you about our new series on the founding fathers, the men who made America.
1: We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America?
0: What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We we know the faces from the banknotes. But they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability, lies the nuance of complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of them. their beliefs, their experiences.
1: These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally fundamental to what American politics looks like today.
0: It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men.
1: Yeah, and they have rip roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.